At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 52, The Chinese Civil War, 1945 to 1949. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. So last episode, we examined the war of resistance against the Japanese. We observed how the war saved the Chinese Communist Party and irreparably damaged the nationalists. The war gave the communists breathing space to rebuild their forces and to wage a public relations campaign against the nationalist regime. Meanwhile, the nationalists carried the brunt of the fighting against the Japanese. Their best troops were destroyed. They suffered defeat after defeat and fought desperate but doomed battles to hold China's major cities. Despite their best efforts, vast tracts of China and its richest cities were occupied, imploding the economy, exacerbating inflation and corruption, which in turn destroyed the nationalist reputation domestically and internationally for good governance and competence. Despite China's suffering in the Second Sino-Japanese War, China ended the war in a better position diplomatically than when the war had begun. When the war began in 1937, China wasn't even considered a minor power, but a failed state and a victim of Japanese aggression. When the war ended in 1945, China eliminated all the unequal treaties and was regarded as one of the great powers in principle, despite reality, and the chief great power in the Far East, and held a permanent seat on the new UN Security Council. With these diplomatic wins, the nationalist regime was in trouble. Chiang at the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War had spoken in public with confidence was determined and strong. Now he seemed to many flat, dull, and unconvincing. The once reformist nationalist government had become a corrupt kleptocracy, incapable of instilling allegiance, let alone excitement, amongst the Chinese people. Indeed, the Kuomintang had become widely hated and disdained by most Chinese people. The war had taken its toll on Chiang and the nationalists. The nationalists and Chiang gained a domestic and international reputation for economic incompetence, shameless corruption, and unspeakable cruelty to their own people. The nationalists were made up of a small elite with no deep tradition of government and without extensive social networks, especially in the countryside. Indeed, it was a small group concentrated in the lower Yangtze provinces. Even so, they were internally divided, as the frequent rebellions against Chiang in the 1930s illustrated. The war of resistance added a new layer of bad blood on old grievances, including a deep resentment between those who had gone with the nationalists to Choking and those who had stayed behind. Many of those who had been officials in the various Chinese puppet regimes of the Japanese were welcomed back into the nationalist fold, angering many Chinese. 
Others were being allowed to retreat with the Japanese to Japan. Many Chinese naturally wanted these people to stand trial for the crimes that they had committed in the service of the Japanese. China was devastated after the war. Seven million people were starving, and another 33 million were on the brink of starvation. 95 million Chinese, or 26% of the population, had become refugees as a result of the war with Japan and were displaced. Only 10% of China's rail network was operational, and many of China's rivers had been mined, making transport of goods and food difficult. Meanwhile, 50 million homeless and refugees filled the roads in an attempt to find food, safety, friends, and loved ones after the war. By December 1945, some 200,000 tons of supplies were stacked high on Shanghai's docks, but the capacity of small vessels plying the Yangtze was limited to 10,000 tons a month, and the railroad no longer existed in many parts of China, so the aid that did arrive could not be distributed. Major epidemics such as cholera, malaria, and the plague swept through China. As a result of war and economic collapse, the nationalists depended on printing money and requisitions at gunpoint to fund itself. Actually, this process alienated and impoverished the Chinese people. In 1946, the grain tax failed completely, and the government was forced to steal more from the peasants and to import rice from abroad. Food prices rose steadily as officials hoarded rice to sell at huge profit, while what food was left was requisitioned to the army, although much of this food was stolen before it even reached the troops. As a result of this, people were going hungry and starving, including the Kuomintang army. The army at this point was primarily formed by conscripts, who in some cases were virtually prisoners. Theoretically, every male, 20 to 35, was eligible for the draft, but the rich bribed their way out. Most men did not report willingly if their number was called, but had to be arrested. In one province in 1947, of the 4,000 men called up, only 82 showed up for service. Of these, only 39 passed the physical fitness test and were enlisted. Many men fled town so that they wouldn't be captured. Some resisted violently. Others sold themselves into virtual slavery to a landlord who could protect them from being drafted. This reluctance to join was not because they were fans of the communists, nor were they cowards. Their hesitation in joining was their justifiable concerns around mistreatment in the army. By this time, the mistreatment of conscripts and enlisted men was notorious. For example, in July 1945, five officers were executed for murdering 105 of their conscripts. Many officers charged their troops for their own rations. If the soldiers couldn't pay up, the men starved. The other officers stole their soldiers' rations and sold it on the open market. New recruits were issued summer uniforms even in the winter that led to the deaths from the cold. Large numbers of conscripts were also dying as a result of mistreatment. New recruits were roped together on the march and confined so that they couldn't escape. Moreover, nationalist armies at this point in time were also poorly disciplined. Most formations were more akin to bandits or gangs than a professional army. In contrast to the nationalists, peasants willingly gave what meager food supplies they had to the communists. The communists treated the people well and had no shortage of recruits. Officers and troops were treated equally. They were also well supplied and were motivated to fight for the communism. Beyond their issues with the army and peasants, the nationalists faced consistent issues with students in the 1945 to 1949 period. Essentially an anti-war movement, students were heavily involved in protests and strikes. Some of these were over political issues, others were over academic and school-related matters. The students had three primary demands. One, an immediate end of the civil war, advocating for a coalition government between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party. Most students preferred the Chinese Communist Party, given the corrupt nature of the Kuomintang, 
but thought the price of civil war and deaths and destruction was too high a price to ensure communist rule and instead opted for a coalition government. The second demand of students was for an end to American influence in China. Some 50,000 U.S. Marines were in Qindao and Shandong province. The conduct of Americans was a frequent subject in Chinese newspapers 1945 to 1946. Numerous stories of reckless driving, robberies, drunkenness, rape, and even murder were reported. Complaints were made to American military authorities, investigations authorized, and punishments carried out, yet incidents still occurred. The students also felt that American support for the Kuomintang was facilitating the Civil War. Chinese businesses were also unhappy with the new free trade deals that had been signed by the Nationalist and the U.S. governments. Chinese businessmen argued it was difficult for them to compete with American industry and a Buy Chinese movement had begun. The final demand for the students was a shift from government spending on defense to civilian needs. Student demonstrations were not well organized or well planned. Most were not designed with any specific goals or objectives. In some cases, though, students did have limited objectives, such as compensation for victims of government violence. The students believed that they could push public opinion and pressure the government into changing policy. Nevertheless, beyond creating disturbances, the students were unable to achieve any of their objectives given their limited political influence. The government denounced the students as communists. It was true that many students did support the Chinese Communist Party. Nevertheless, many students were apolitical or held sympathy for the Kuomintang, but went along with the tide of student protests due to peer pressure. As the conflict escalated from 1945 to 1949, the Kuomintang authorities became increasingly ruthless in their efforts to suppress the students. The government's harsh methods further alienated the students, even driving many into the arms of the communists. The Chinese intelligentsia were also in a unique situation. Many had received a Western education by missionaries, and a large portion of teachers and professors had received advanced training in Europe and the United States. During the late 1940s, these intellectuals published their views in a number of periodicals and newspapers, which enjoyed a varying degree of popularity, as well as the attention of the Kuomintang and their secret police. Liberal intellectuals, like students, opposed the war. They reasoned the war was too high a price to pay in order to keep the Kuomintang in the power. They believed that the Civil War would carry on indefinitely, perhaps even into the 1960s, as neither side had the capacity to defeat the other. The Kuomintang had been trying to destroy the Communists since 1927, and there was little in their minds to think that the Nationalists would triumph in 1947 or 1948. In their view, the Chinese Communist Party was incapable of defeating the better-equipped Nationalist Army, and they believed that the Soviets wouldn't supply the Chinese Communist Party the needed arms to do so because it might risk a confrontation with the United States. Most of the intelligentsia were liberal progressives, but not necessarily supporters of the Communists, which, as you will recall, had taken a peasant focus in contrast to the urban intellectuals. Moreover, they viewed one-party rule as violating the principles of democracy and felt that the Communists placed too much emphasis on the masses and not enough on the individual. They knew that the Kuomintang might not like what they had wrote or said, but generally they didn't have to fear liquidation as they would have to under communist rule. Like their students, they favored a coalition government between the nationalists and the communists as a means by which one party could check the ambitions and excesses of the other party. Many liberal intellectuals wanted China to have a combination of the American and Soviet systems, the economic and egalitarian system of the Soviet Union with the freedoms and rights of the American system. Or as the popular saying went, they wanted the vote and the rice bowl. The problem was how to square these two systems. How could individual freedom and democracy work with a planned economy? 
Despite their reservations about the communists, they viewed the democratic moves of Chang and the nationalists with skepticism. Official transgressions against civil liberties were numerous. For example, in January 1947, the government guaranteed civil liberties and released 1,000 people from jail only to carry out a wave of arbitrary mass arrests six weeks later, arresting many of the same people they had just released. Public intellectuals were often ignored by local authorities or temporarily silenced by martial law decrees. They protested the government for its interference with due process of law, with freedoms of the press and of assembly, and with the right to petition and protest. Assassinations were also carried out against academics critical of government, and at one point in 1946, about a dozen professors took refuge in the American consulate. Government interference with the press took a number of forms. They included temporary censorship, regional censorship, temporary suspension of individual publications over some specific issue, banning if an infraction was considered grave, physical assault, arrest, imprisonment of journalists, and even the beating of newspaper boys. Nevertheless, since the ban on publications that criticized the government was never total, it tended to only increase criticism from those remaining press outlets that weren't yet prosecuted. Mao viewed intellectuals as the petty bourgeois, given their family backgrounds, politics, and their standard of living. He noted that they were politically alert and dissatisfied with conditions in China and often lived in fear of unemployment. They could be valuable in the revolution in helping to link the vanguard with the masses through their writings and speeches. Nevertheless, they were dangerous in his perspective, given their inherent individuality, impracticality, weak will, and passive behavior, and could even be hostile to the revolution. They, therefore, could only overcome such shortcomings after a mass struggle over a long period. The Kuomintang bureaucracy, in contrast to the students or intellectuals by all accounts by 1945, had become saturated with corruption at all levels. Although, it should be noted, Chang himself appears to have taken very little part in the corruption. Nevertheless, his wife's family became central figures in the bribery. Essentially, money and favors greased the wheels that made the Kuomintang's political system operate, which also ensured its inefficiency as well as alienating the liberals and the progressives in Chinese society. It also had a debilitating effect on the morale of the fighting forces. Who wants to fight and possibly die for a corrupt regime? The communists, in contrast, worked hard to keep their reputation clean. Traditionally in China, the bureaucracy had been poorly paid dating back to the imperial system, so bribery and corruption had been a constant issue. Nevertheless, corruption had grown to epic proportions as a result of the Second World War. As a result of the war, hyperinflation reduced the civil servants' wages in real terms and, like everyone else, destroyed their savings. In Chinese tradition at the time, bribery through gifts or selling uh, posts of, to unqualified applicants was not seen as bad, but when the gifts and bribes became excessive, it was seen as an issue. It was indeed deeply held belief that becoming an official would lead to wealth. Critics of the Kuomintang, like students, communists, or intellectuals, failed to note these cultural and historical trends and equated the corruption as an inherent aspect of the Kuomintang, not Chinese culture or society. Many Chinese intellectuals noted, though, that despite the corruption of the bureaucracy in the 1920s and 1930s, the bureaucracy of the Kuomintang grew ex exponentially after World War II, yet most of these new bureaucrats, by all accounts, did very little, meaning China was spending more on a larger bureaucracy, yet getting a less efficient government. Beyond these domestic challenges, internationally, Chiang had become irrelevant. China's diplomatic influence was, was the result of Roosevelt's fondness for China and his desire for China to become the dominant power in the Far East. With his death in April of 1945, China lost much of its influence, especially as the war was coming to an end. 
Chang was not involved in the Potsdam Conference in July 1945, which demanded Japan's unconditional surrender. Worse yet, he wasn't even consulted. Mao's reputation, in contrast, emerged from the Second Sino-Japanese War, greatly enhanced from his sheer ability to survive against incredible odds and his appealing message of social revolution. China's idealist youth were attracted to the message of hope and land redistribution. Indeed, over half the Communist Party was below the age of 20, and few were above the age of 30. Mao leveraged the power of youthful idealism, unrestrained by skepticism, cynicism, or impacted by life's experiences. During the war, as the opposition party, the communists had the advantage of blaming all of China's ills on the incumbent nationalist government. Mao also had the advantage of laying out his own vision for China without the challenge of implementing such programs, writing his most famous works on military strategy, propaganda, civil-military relations, mobilization of the peasants, land reform, social classes, and social and political revolution. This era also marked the birth of Mao's cult of personality, which would persist throughout his reign into the 1970s, although Mao wasn't the only military thinker amongst the communists. General Zhu Di, the founder of the Liberation Army, developed sparrow warfare or using swarm tactics coupled with hit-and-run techniques. Zhu Di also developed attacks against enemy supply lines, the destruction of bridges and rail lines, and the removal of the population and animal from areas under occupation versus the wholesale destruction of scorched earth. Meanwhile, General Peng Dewi spearheaded ideas in mobile guerrilla warfare. Indeed, Mao's greatest strength lay not in his military insights, but in his political intuition. He had the ability to grab the attention of disparate audiences. He was arguably one of the greatest Chinese politicians of the 20th century, and perhaps unrivaled in Chinese history. Communists looked to unite all potentially sympathetic groups under their leadership, initially against the Japanese and later against the nationalists. Mao focused on winning over the popular loyalties, not the elite loyalties that consumed Chang. The communists leveraged the tension between the landlords and the peasants, creditors and debtors, and the nationalist government and the Chinese people, gathering popularity and loyalty through calls for rent reduction, anti-usury laws, wage increases, and the persecution of local bullies. Communists had no vested interest in any part of the status quo. They constituted a coalition of politically excluded social groups, such as intellectuals, students, workers, and peasants, none of whom owned land, whereas many of the nationalists were landowners unwilling to divest themselves from their wealth and power. The land reform championed by the communists undermined the nationalist power base. Wherever the communists gained control, they implemented land reform, not only to cement loyalties, but also to implicate the peasants in social revolution. Peasant involvement in land seizure precluded their return to the nationalist control, as doing so would seriously endanger their lives. The peasant farmers fought partly for the communists out of fear of revenge from the landlords. Those benefiting, though, from these original land requisitions became the victims of the second round as they were perceived as landlords in later years. The communists also attempted to win over members of other left-wing-leaning groups and potential progressives. This helped to alleviate fears of communist domination and created an atmosphere of inclusion and also became a vetting system for recruiting new members to the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party created administrative institutions from the village level up, along with parallel popular front organizations, rally public support, and to perform public services. It should also be noted that the terms socialism and communism mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, just like democracy and capitalism. Mao and the communists at this point were calling for things like land reform, 
lower taxes, the elimination of favored families, and the equalization of the tax burden and a graduated income tax. These are not very radical demands or positions in retrospect. They didn't illustrate Mao's actual radical plans for the nation either, like state ownership of, of industry, mass collectivization, or the end of private property, which is, were not slogans of the revolution. Many Chinese communists saw the Chinese Communist Party as a way of bringing about economic justice and a better material life for the Chinese people, along with social benefits like free health care, free education, guaranteed employment, along with social justice and greater rights for the poor, peasants, and women. They weren't thinking about a large-scale planned economy like the Soviet Union. Mao even called for a new capitalism led by the laboring classes to be implemented after the defeat of the Kuomintang. They argued that social change alone could not succeed in an impoverished nation. Capitalism, as endorsed by the Kuomintang, would only create new forms of injustice and exploitation. These oppressive forces also stood in the way of development and were inefficient. A progressive, planned economy was China's only hope of developing a productive capacity. With a planned economy, everything else, including politics and education, had to be planned as well. Therefore, all exploitive relations with which hinder production would be eliminated and those which encourage production would be allowed to exist for a transitional period. The two ideal models of economic policy held up by the Chinese Communist Party was the Soviet policy under Lenin in the 1920s and the post-war policies of Sweden. Many critics of the communists argued that the Chinese Communist Party was subservient to Moscow, but Mao and the Chinese Communist Party disavowed their subservience to the Kremlin and emphasized that China's road to socialism would be different than that of the Soviet Union and would reflect China's specific circumstances and needs. All of this, of course, was a temporary expedient to buy the loyalties of the peasants to win the Civil War, like the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War. After the communist victory in 1949, as in the Soviet Union, they turned on the peasants, reclaiming the land for the state. Through the forced collectivization and state-controlled capitalism, which resulted in the deaths of millions. In contrast to Mao and the communists, Chiang and the nationalists concentrated on strengthening his ties to China's elites and rebuilding his military. He offered nothing to the peasants but unrelenting conscription and requisitions at gunpoint. When extortion and taxes grew to be too much, peasants had no courts to hear their grievances. Indeed, they only had three options. One, they could petition the local provincial authority, but experience showed this was a dangerous and ineffective because they could be labeled a troublemaker. Second, they could refuse to work their fields, but this would mean starvation for them and their families. Finally, peasants could riot, but authorities would often crush these revolts, and they would be lucky if they escaped with their lives. Moreover, these revolts usually ended quickly as they lacked the resources to carry on beyond a few days. Chiang intended to defeat the communists and then reform China, whereas Mao understood that he had to reform first and then fight. Whereas Chiang offered only empty promises to his peasant conscripts, Mao implemented literacy and public health programs. He provided basic social services in the long-neglected countryside, including local residents and local governance, and most importantly, implementing land and tax reform. Meanwhile, following Japan's surrender, it became U.S. policy to bring its troops home and to demobilize its massive forces. U.S. Secretary of State James Byrons stressed that American forces not be employed by the Kuomintang to deal with dissident groups and on the day after Japan's surrender, liaison personnel were pulled from nationalist units. General Marshall did, however, order American forces to occupy Chinese coastal cities like Shanghai so that Japanese forces could be concentrated and repatriated. 
Once the Japanese were disarmed and sent back to Japan, the United States would evacuate its forces. By the summer of 1945, the communists controlled much of northern China and governed about a quarter of China's population. The surrender of Japan quickly revived the long-simmering Chinese Civil War. The Chinese Communist Party drew up plans to take Beijing and Tianjin. Communist radio announced that Chiang Kai-shek was a fascist and denounced him. The communists also scored a big win as the puppet army of Manchukuo, which had been armed and trained by the Japanese, some 500,000 men, went over to the communists. Manchuria was the only region of China which had been cleansed of the nationalists as both the Japanese and the communists had attacked them. Once Japan surrendered, the region quickly fell to the communists. Those elites in the region who had survived the war were all Japanese collaborators. The Soviets who had entered the war in the waning days captured Manchuria and northern Korea. They resisted Chinese communist penetration of Manchuria and even evicted some Chinese communist units from cities they captured. On August the 14th, the Soviets signed a treaty of friendship and alliance with the Nationalists. In return for the Soviet withdrawal from Manchuria, within three months, the Nationalists accepted the independence of Mongolia and recognition of Soviet claims over Kuril and the Sakhalin Islands, the internationalization of the port at Dalan, and the joint management of China's eastern and southern Manchurian railways, along with the Soviet occupation of northern Korea. These territories gave Stalin a buffer for the Soviet Union in the east. Chiang, meanwhile, had been caught off guard with the end of the war, and his best units were in Burma. Therefore, it would take him months to deploy his troops to central and northern China to engage the communists. Chiang wired Mao and asked him to join him in Chokang for talks, but Mao declined. Chiang invited Mao again to talks a few days later. Mao again declined, but did send Zhou Enlai in his place. Chiang then sent a third invitation, saying that he was delighted to receive Zhou, but still requested Mao come himself. At this point, Stalin intervened and urged Mao to attend the peace talks. Faced with opposition from the United States and the Soviet Union, Mao called off his attempts to take the larger cities of northern China and traveled to Chokeng to meet Chiang. The communist papers once again referred to Chiang as president versus fascist reactionary. Nevertheless, the Red Army, despite abandoning the conquest of major cities, captured some 150 towns in northern China and pushed into Inner Mongolia, deconstructing railways so that the nationalists couldn't use them. At the peace talks, both sides made concessions. The communists were prepared to recognize Chiang as the nation's leader, and Chiang agreed to the communists taking part in the surrender ceremonies with Japan and to a coalition government. But the same stumbling blocks remained. Chiang insisted on a single Chinese army under his command, but the communists refused to lay down their arms. They remembered the white terror all too well and saw disarming as a death sentence. Meanwhile, the 10th and 14th U.S. Air Forces, along with the U.S. Navy, transported nationalist troops to Shanghai, Nanking, Beijing, Tianjin, Wuhan, Canton, and many other strategic uh, cities along the Yangtze and along China's coast, as well as key cities in central and northern China. The nationalists also recruited many of the former Chinese-Japanese puppet armies to their cause. Unsurprisingly, both the nationalists and communists rushed to gain control of territory before the other side did. The nationalists also took control of Taiwan, which had been ruled by Japan since 1895. Taiwan had prospered under Japanese rule. They were angered when the Kuomintang not only took the most prominent jobs, but also requisitioned many buildings, businesses, and homes. Inflation skyrocketed, and nationalists drained commodities from Taiwan in order to support the war effort on the mainland. Living standards for Taiwanese plummeted, while nationalist officials lived it up with huge profits. 
Taiwan erupted with protests, some of whom even wore their old Japanese uniforms, attacking police, buildings, occupying radio stations, and trying to seize military installations. The crackdown conducted by troops shipped in for the purpose left thousands dead, including many members of Taiwanese elite families. I want to take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like episodes about Asian history like this episode or an episode about Japan, the early Cold War, or the French War in Indochina, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. To make a donation, visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Science, of course, was a big part of the Cold War, as was the study of physics. Physical Attraction is a podcast that tries to explain physics, science, and the latest developments in technology. From the laws of nature to the end of the world, you can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts, on the web at www.physicspodcast.com, and on Twitter at physicspod. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so that you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. In October 1945, full-scale war resumed a month after the formal Japanese surrender, and by December, hostilities had broken out in 11 provinces. Chiang sent more than 70% of his troops to the north, deploying them to the central plains. By November, Russia had closed all Manchurian ports to the nationalists, forcing them to use Qindao and Hebei. The Soviets also rejected the nationalist request to transfer captured Japanese industry to them. Instead, the Soviets started to box the industry up and ship it back to the Soviet Union, claiming they were prizes of war. In effect, the Soviets extracted reparations from the Chinese for a war against Japan in which it had barely participated. They took 83% of Manchuria's electrical power generation equipment, wiping out 71% of its electrical capacity, 82% of its cement production equipment, 80% of its metalworking industry, 65% of its liquid fuels and lubricant production, and commandeered some 50,000 rail cars to carry the loot home. All told, Russia removed 70 to 90% of Manchuria's industrial capacity. The U.S. estimated that the Soviets caused some $865 million worth of damage to Manchuria, not including gratuitous looting of private property. Nevertheless, neither the nationalists nor the communists publicly protested this theft, as they both wanted this to carry favors with the Soviets. The nationalists apparently agreed to the theft of half of Manchuria's industry in exchange for help with facilitating nationalists in retaking Manchuria, which, if accurate, the Soviets didn't live up to their end of the bargain. While some sources say the communists bartered away the industry in exchange for arms the Russians lent them, which seems possible. Seeing how the situation was deteriorating between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party, Truman sent General Marshall to negotiate a settlement. Truman wanted the Chinese to form a coalition government between the nationalists and the communists. He feared if the nationalists destroyed the communists, the Soviets would be less likely to tolerate non-communist parties in Eastern Europe. Marshall spent a miserable year in China. The initial omens were good. He secured a ceasefire agreement between the two sides and a number of other agreements. Nevertheless, the hard part was making both sides live up to their promises. He also succeeded in arranging the repatriation of close to 3 million Japanese back to Japan. America then tried to pressure Chiang into making peace by threatening future American aid, so he pretended to cooperate, but in practice, Chiang declined to become an instrument of U.S. policy. At the end of the day, Chiang was prepared to make many concessions to the communists, but was determined to have a unified government with a unified army. 
the communists, for their part, were unwilling to give up their arms and distrusted the nationalists. As for the Soviets, they initially kept the Chinese communists at arm's length. The Treaty of Friendship with Chiang had given Stalin much of what he wanted in the Far East. Nevertheless, before the agreed-upon date of their departure from Manchuria, Soviet policy changed as a result of the Marshall Plan and the Cold War heating up in Europe. They suggested to the Chinese communists that they deploy 300,000 troops to southern Manchuria. They also delayed their withdrawal and armed the Chinese communists with captured Japanese weapons that they had taken at the end of the war, which included some 2,000 trucks, 600 tanks, 861 planes, 120,000 rifles, 4,000 machine guns, 150,000 grenades, 20,000 overcoats, 30,000 boots, and 8 million rounds of ammunition, communications equipment, and seven small transport planes. The following spring, they supplied an additional 100,000 rifles, 10,000 machine guns, and 1,000 artillery pieces. The Soviets made further small arms deliveries that summer, along with medical supplies and additional 10 million rounds of ammunition. Soviets also provided uh, Soviet and Czech-made small arms. In addition to the arms came conventional warfare training that the Soviets had learned in their war against the Germans on the Eastern Front. This training was vital for the final phase of the Civil War and for the Chinese to properly utilize the vehicles and tanks the Soviets had provided. Many of the communist Chinese leading generals had trained in the Soviet Union. Beyond the arms, Manchuria was the most industrialized part of China and the second most industrialized area in Asia behind Japan. As pointed out in earlier episodes, Japan had built up the region's industries through the 1930s and early 1940s. The communists captured 160 factories, 74 mines, 26 lumberyards, and restored 35% of Manchuria's 1945 industrial capacity. In 1948, communist arsenals there were pr producing annually 2,000 artillery shells, 500,000 mortar rounds, 1.5 million grenades, and 17 million rounds of ammunition. The communists also captured some 8,000 Japanese doctors and nurses they pressed into their service of their army. An unknown number of Japanese experts were also made to work in the military industries, their Air Force Academy, and in artillery schools. The Soviets also sent 300 engineers and the Commissar of Transportation, General Ivan Kolovich, who had been instrumental in keeping the Soviet rail system in operation during World War II. Kolovich uh, and his team repaired 1,300 kilometers of track and 62 bridges and trained thousands of Chinese on how to operate trains. These improvements allowed Mao to move and supply his forces quicker. This was nothing, though, compared to what the United States provided the nationalists from 1945 to 1949. More than $1 billion in military aid, equipping 39 divisions, plus an additional $1 billion in economic aid. In August 1946, once the fighting had resumed, Chiang announced that he would unilaterally press ahead with convening a national assembly to adopt a draft constitution and institute a constitutional government. Chiang moved to capture Manchuria. The truce between the communists and the nationalists broke down as Mao's forces contested the spread of the nationalists into northern China. Chiang wanted to capture northern China because it represented the most industrial region of the nation, despite what the Russians had stolen, and it still had a large stock of Japanese arms who did not want to fall into communist hands. The communists withdrew their forces from the cities, although a covert political presence remained. The communists let the nationalists take the cities unimpeded and directed their forces to fight from their rural bases. Nationalist forces also helped the communists by living off the land, stealing food from the peasants, which helped alienate northern Chinese against the nationalist regime. Chiang fell into Mao's trap as the nationalists captured northern cities, Mao's forces surrounding them and isolating them. 
Mao derived this strategy from games like chess and Go, which focus on dominating the board versus killing pieces. Mao, unlike Chang, focused on China's terrain, like cities and rivers, versus focusing on his opponent's forces. In the spring of 1947, the Nationalists undertook two more offensives, one that saw them finally capture Yunnan, while the other was a thrust into the communist-controlled Shandong province. They also threw back a communist attempt to retake the city of Siping. Meanwhile, back in Washington, the Americans were furious that fighting had resumed and escalated. Truman considered Chang and his in-laws to be corrupt thieves who had squandered 750 million U.S. aid. Although these criticisms were a tad ironic coming from him, as his administration came to be known for corruption. In January 1947, Truman withdrew Marshall in the hopes that it would lessen the chances of a Soviet intervention and might convince Mao that the United States wasn't his enemy. Meanwhile, he put pressure on Chang to make peace and place an arms embargo on both the nationalists and the communists, along with freezing loans to the nationalists. Truman wouldn't restore aid to the nationalists until the spring of 1947, but the supplies didn't start reaching the nationalists again until 1948, leaving nationalist China without support for a year. By the spring of 1947, nationalist operations started to slow down as they ran short of parts and ran low on ammunition. Lack of aid proved to be a vital element in the communist victory in China. Just as American aid turned to a trickle and ran dry, the Soviets ramped up their support of the communist Chinese. Lack of ammunition forced the nationalists to go on the defensive. General Wiedermeyer, who had completed a fact-finding mission in China, believed that the situation was critical. He urged the president to make arms and ammunition available to the nationalists, but Marshall, now Secretary of State, urged concentrating on saving Europe through the Marshall Plan. He argued that China's problems couldn't be solved through military means alone. President Truman agreed and, and saw China as a lost cause. After capturing a number of cities and strategic objectives, Chiang attempted to fortify these positions as strong points and consolidate his winnings. This, though, played into Mao's plan as the communists began to isolate na the nationalists in the cities, attacking their supply lines and encircling the cities. Instead of cutting up and dividing communist forces in northern China, they suddenly found the railways connecting their scattered forces under attack, pinning the nationalist divisions down and preventing them from moving or receiving reinforcements. They soon found themselves sieged in the cities that they had taken only a few weeks earlier. The communists also benefited from having an extensive spy network that provided them with timely information. Mao's study of Sun Tzu's The Art of War's 13 Uses of Spies heavily influenced his strategy. One of Chang's personal bodyguards and a favorite of his wife, the German Walter Steinis, was a Russian spy. The personal secretary to the Nationalist General, Hu Zongnan, a personal secretary, was also a spy. She warned the communists to not defend Yunnan, despite its symbolism supplying the Nationalist order of battle. Because of this information, Mao decided to withdraw. A key assistant to General Lao Fai who was the Nationalist Chief of Staff, was also a communist spy, as he reported on all the major military moves to the Nationalist. The Soviets also provided cryptology support with breaking the Kuomintang codes. It's unclear if the Nationalists were unaware of these intelligence leaks and that their codes may have been compromised or they lacked the resources to really address the issue. The Nationalists were now in a terrible situation. The economy showed no signs of recovery and rural conditions were abysmal. The Kuomintang armies were running out of ammunition, and the U.S. had decided to end their support for the regime at a critical point. 
Panics about communist infiltration of the cities triggered crackdowns, which destroyed what little popularity the Kuomintang retained in the cities. In February 1947, 3,000 students were arrested, one-third of whom were shot, one-third released, and one-third sent to jail. The 1948 election of Harry S. Truman to the presidency in November shocked many and any hope that a new American administration would intervene in China. By mid-1948, the communists had suffered 800,000 casualties. 450 of these were able to rejoin the fight. Moreover, they were able to recruit an additional 1.1 million soldiers and added some 800,000 nationalist defectors to the ranks. Communist forces grew from some 1.2 million in 1946 to 2.8 million troops by 1948. Meanwhile, the nationalists lost 1.5 million troops, but still had some 3.6 million troops under arms. As the momentum of the war shifted, the communists welcomed defectors at least until they won the war. These defectors would be persecuted in later years of the regime, though. While the Civil War raged, though, they were treated, they treated these defectors relatively well, especially in contrast to the nationalists, integrating them into the People's Liberation Army. Chang's use of many of his less loyal troops as cannon fodder also contributed to these defections. In the West, the defection of whole armies was rare, but common in Chinese history. The Ming army became the Green Standard Army of the Qing Dynasty. Desertions of the old order for the new reflected the belief in dynastic cycles we spoke about in episode 49. Loyalties in this civil war, as well as civil wars in earlier periods, changed in tidal ways when it became clear that the mandate of heaven or authority shifted from one collapsing order to a new ascendant one. Moreover, as we explained earlier, Chinese politics were dominated by personal loyalty during this time, not institutions. When Chang's star was rising during the Great Northern Expedition, warlords and armies flocked to his banner. When his star fell with the loss of Manchuria, they defected en masse. Another way of thinking about this is bandwagon sports fans. When the Red Sox were losing, they had a small fan base, but in the early 2000s, it grew exponentially as they won World Series. By November 1948, Chang had lost many of his best units, those trained and supplied by the Americans who had fought in Burma. The Americans urged him to abandon his strategy of holding the cities and rail stations and urged him to withdraw from northern China, cutting his losses, but he refused. From November 1948 to January 1949, though he lost three more major campaigns in rapid succession. The communist victory in Manchuria produced many fears in Washington, but few solutions outside of throwing money and arms at the situation. The Democrats were dumbfounded as to how to explain to the American people why China fell to communism despite $2 billion in American aid. The communist victory in Manchuria was followed by crushing nationalist defeats in and around Beijing and Tianjin, where entire nationalist armies were wiped out. The Nationalists lost nearly 1.5 million men through wounds, deaths, and defections in three months. The Waihai Campaign was one of the largest battles of the war in which 1.8 million Chinese fought each other along a 200-kilometer front for a key railway junction. The Communists destroyed three Nationalist armies and cleared the way to the Yangtze River. Beijing surrendered without a fight by Nationalist General Hu Zongyi, convinced by his daughter, who was a Communist spy. From January 1946 to January 1949, the Nationalists lost some 5 million soldiers, three-quarters of whom defected to the Communists. With these unrelenting defeats and debacles, Chiang was forced to resign as president, but retained his leadership of the Nationalist Party, hamstringing his successor, Li Zongren. 
On January the 31st, 1949, the communists marched into Beijing with their captured American equipment. Lai wanted to hold the communists at the Yangtze River, but lacked the troops, fuel, and ammunition. The chain of command had broken down as generals refused to send their troops to defend the border. Instead, they focused on escaping further south into Taiwan. The Yangtze was the last natural obstacle to the advancement of the communists moving further south and capturing the national space of support. The Yangtze is one of the greatest rivers in the world, stretching from Shanghai in the east to Tibet in the west. It is navigable by ocean liner some 600 miles inland, while smaller craft can go some 1,500 miles inland. According to General Wiedemeyer, the Nationalists could have defended it with broomsticks if they had wanted to. Indeed, the Nationalists had not bothered to pay the Navy, and they mutinied going over to the Communists with some 30 ships and 1,200 sailors, which helped transport Communist forces across the river. Previously, the Communists had no Navy and would not have been able to cross the river had the Nationalists paid their sailors, potentially saving the regime. Chiang pleaded with the Chinese Communist Party, Soviets, and the Americans to negotiate, but he had little political capital left with any of them. Chiang's only hope was a potential world war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and he waited with anticipation, watching Stalin's clampdown in Eastern Europe and the Berlin blockade. On December the 9th, 1949, though, he too evacuated China for Taiwan. After Chiang escaped to Taiwan, the U.S. State Department predicted that the communists would take the island, but the U.S. decided it would not defend the island from invasion and would watch Chiang and the nationalists fall. But Mao lacked the ships and amphibious equipment to capture the island in the near term. However, with the outbreak of the Korean War in the summer of 1950, U.S. policy changed and the United States reaffirmed its support for the regime and protects the island from communist Chinese invasion to the present day. Indeed, there was never a technical end to the Chinese Civil War despite the creation of the People's Republic of China. Chiang fled with between 1 to 2 million soldiers, civilians, and officials to Taiwan with the country's gold supply and many of its other national treasures. Other nationalist troops fled to Tibet, others to the Muslim regions of northwest China to fight on. Several thousands more fled to Burma and Thailand. The establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949 wasn't a return to ordinary times, but the creation of a new revolutionary society. Many joined this movement with enthusiasm. Thousands of overseas Chinese throughout Asia, Australia, and America returned to offer their talents as engineers, scientists, economists, doctors, nurses, and teachers to assist the communists in giving birth to a new China. The communists were the embodiment of hope, not just in China, but in the rest of Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America, and even to some in the West. In a final analysis, the long Chinese Civil War that raged from roughly 1912 to 1949, no state or force in China held a monopoly on, on violence. Warlords, the communists, and the nationalists all jostled for power. The Soviet Union, Japan, and the United States all intervened as well, compounding the bloodshed and instability. Failing states and fallen empires typically breed political instability and chaos. This normally creates a power vacuum that will draw in other states who both try and take advantage of the weak or failed empire or those who try and limit and stop the political instability from spilling over their borders or from adversely affecting their interest. China, in this regard, was a perfect example. Japan sought to, at first to mitigate the decline of China via the First Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, attempting to protect her interest from other great powers like Russia, which wanted to take advantage of China's weakness. By the 1930s, though, Japan sought to the conquest of China. The Soviets and Stalin wanted a weakened China and a dependent and dependable client state. 
The United States sought a unified, democratic, and capitalist China open to American investment and trade. And utterly failed in her attempt to influence China. Her imperial ambitions were too great and only brought about her ruin. Her decisions in reference to China led to her own occupation and the rise of the communist and China, the exact opposite of what Japan had sought. In the short term, the Soviets achieved their goals of having China fight Japan in the 1930s and establish a dependent communist state for the first half of the Cold War. In the long term, though, Chinese animosity towards the Soviet Union grew as Chinese leaders learned that Russia's China policy was designed to benefit them and not China. By the late 1960s, both nations were having border clashes and were on the verge of war. In the short term, America failed to create a unified democratic and capitalist nation, although in the long term, China did become a capitalist nation, which economically and politically greatly benefited America at the end of the 20th century. During the long Chinese Civil War, 20 years elapsed before the conflict settled into a bilateral communist versus nationalist war, followed by three years of bitter fighting in Manchuria before the masses of Chinese concluded that the communists, not the nationalists, held the mandate of heaven and were the legitimate government. When this happened, loyalties shifted at a bewildering speed. Belief in dynastic cycles, the mandate of heaven, and even in-group loyalties account for the rapidity of the nationalist collapse after the loss of Manchuria. The struggle between the communist and the nationalist wasn't only decided on the battlefield, but in the hearts and minds of the Chinese people. The communists were consistently better at this and able to secure the allegiance of the best and brightest, especially of China's youth. The Chinese Communist Party was popular movement by the late 1940s, whereas the nationalists had become a hated small minority ruling class. The communists won for three primary reasons. The first was the War of Resistance against Japan, 1937 to 1945, significantly weakened the nationalists militarily, economically, and politically. Chiang's best units and officers were wiped out in the war with Japan, all while Mao saved his resources. Economically, the war devastated China, causing massive inflation and corruption. This, coupled with Chiang's many defeats against the Japanese, irreparably damaged his and the nationalists' reputation with the Chinese people. Inflation, starvation, forced conscription, requisitions at gunpoint, indiscriminate violence against the poor, in combination with the corruption and conspicuous consumption of bi-party elites and their ineptitude, helped to create a highly unpopular regime. Some of this blame must fall at the feet of Chiang himself. He facilitated the wartime conditions which led to these circumstances. He could have made different decisions in regards to allocating resources and fighting corruption. Instead, he chose to let these problems fester until it was too late to address them and he lost all credibility. Second, Mao's use of propaganda and politics of reform were superb. Mao made a long-term bet of investing his limited resources into the people with community organizing and social programming starting in the mid-1930s. By the late 1940s, this investment paid back in huge dividends. Mao won the confidence of the Chinese people, and in the end, they were much more willing to fight and die for him versus the nationalist and Chiang, who had squandered their popular support in the late 1930s and 1940s. Chiang had been unable to fix China's obvious ills, poverty, the imperialism of foreign powers, ceaseless warfare, and political instability. Nationalist officials lived in comparative splendor populating the dance halls and profiting from the black market rackets while their fellow Chinese starved in the countryside and cities or died in the battlefield. Mao played off nationalist failures in fighting the Japanese and the economic crash as examples of nationalist mismanagement and incompetence. 
Later, he cited American support for the nationalists as making them puppets of the imperialist, while at the same time playing down his own reliance on the Soviet Union. Simply put, by the end of the Chinese Civil War, the Chinese people loved the communists and hated the nationalists. Finally, America did send more supplies to the nationalists than the Soviets sent to the Chinese Communist Party, but timing is everything in politics and war. The United States stopped its support at a critical moment while the Soviets ramped up theirs, giving the communist forces momentum. No matter how loyal or well-trained your troops, if they don't have ammunition, they can't fight effectively. King again also shares some blame in this. He expected the United States to support him to final victory over the communists, but he failed to perceive that the United States attached a different value to the defeat of the Japanese versus the defeat of the Chinese communists. Japan and not the Chinese Communist Party had bombed Pearl Harbor. The Americans had no quasi-belli with the Chinese communists. Moreover, later on, he never took into consideration the conflict from the American perspective and American interest. He should not have assumed American support, but have worked to secure it. Chang bet that the U.S. wouldn't abandon him since doing so would result in a communist Chinese victory. In the end, he bet wrong. The U.S., for their part, were ignorant of Chinese political objectives. They tried coalition governments, truces, generous aid, and the termination of aid to secure peace, but were unsuccessful. They failed to recognize that the U.S. as a peace broker had very little credit with the Chinese communists. The communists saw the Americans as double dealers who were providing massive amounts of aid to their enemies. The nationalists believed that the U.S. interference impeded their ability to win the Civil War and resented gratuitous American political, military, and economic advice along the way. U.S. policy recommendations were predicated on a unified nationalist government and army, a false assumption. The U.S. failed to realize that Chiang presided over a fraying coalition, where bribes and violence were holding the regime together. His style and method of rule wasn't merely corruption, but had been the nature of Chinese politics since before the fall of the Qing dynasty in the late 19th century. Moreover, as is the case in many civil wars, assassinations and purges carried out by both sides had eliminated the political middle ground required by U.S. schemes for democracy. The Americans focused exclusively on the World War and never understood why the China's civil war had to remain the focus for the Chinese. The Chinese, on the other hand, knew full well that once the World War was over and Japan left, the civil war would resume full throttle. So they fought Japan always with an eye to its impact on the civil war. In the end, U.S. policymakers decided to cut U.S. losses and leave Chiang to his fate. They concluded that dollar diplomacy had failed and that military intervention to save the Kuomintang would require large conventional forces not available and could potentially draw Russia into a confrontation given its proximity to China. The Republican criticism does hold some water that the Democrats lost China, but it wasn't because they were communist agents as McCarthy and others contended but because Truman and his administration inherited a confusing political mess in China. Unlike ourselves, they lacked the hindsight of history. In the opening stages of the Cold War, they didn't view China as an important location of the conflict. Their attention and focus was on Europe and Japan. China had very little industry, and its vast population lived in abject poverty. Moreover, for the money they were investing into the Kuomintang, it seemed to provide very little return on their investment. The Chinese Civil War had been raging since the 1920s, and China had been a political mess since the late 19th century. They didn't appreciate the danger of the situation or that the communists could win so quickly. As a result, this defeat would haunt the Democratic Party and American politics in general the next 20 years. 
The fall of China influenced Truman's decision to intervene in Korea in 1950 and Johnson to intervene in Vietnam in 1964. We know from hindsight, though, that an American intervention into China might not have gone well either, based on our later decisions on intervening in Korea and Vietnam. But in 1947-1948, they didn't have those historical lessons to draw from. Maybe the decision not to intervene was the right one. But since that is a counterfactual question, perhaps we will never know. Mao's victory in China became the benchmark for revolutions in developing countries and around the world, influencing revolutions throughout Asia, Africa, and Latin America, as well as those in the West. Communist China represented an alternative to American consumer capitalism and later to the socialism of the Soviet Union after de-Stalinization. Things could have turned out differently had the Soviets not seized Manchuria in the last weeks of the Second World War, or had Japan surrendered earlier, or had the Americans and the Soviets found a way to collaborate after the war. In history, nothing is really inevitable. Chance and contingency plays critical parts. The communist victory in China and the Kuomintang defeat was not a foregone conclusion. Chiang could have decided to consolidate his position in the South sooner, abandoning his conquest of the North and saving hundreds of thousands of his troops. The U.S. could have continued to support Chiang through 1947, and it's very possible we could have a North and South China today. Nevertheless, that's not what happened. Instead, Mao established the People's Republic of China, which would have a major impact on the Cold War and the world we live in today. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive uh, review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. While there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.